G'day folks and welcome back to Giving What We Can, where we explore how to use our resources to do the most good. Today we're sharing our recent Q&A sessions done for Effective Giving Day 2021 with experts in effective giving, ranging from charity evaluators to grant makers and charity founders. So without further ado, let's listen to our expert panelists helping you to give effectively. Hi, welcome everyone. I am Grace. I am the current head of marketing for Giving What We Can, and I will be your host today for the Q&A that we have right now with three amazing panelists. So today we have Andrew Player, who is the Senior Operations Lead from Charity Entrepreneurship, Jack Rafferty, who is the co-founder and director of the Lead Exposure Elimination Project, aka LEAP, uh, as well as Luke Freeman, our Executive Director at Giving What We Can. Welcome all. Um, so to start off, uh, I'm just going to read through the questions in the Q&A feature. So if anyone has any more questions, feel free to pop them in the Q&A and we can read them out to our panel. So to begin with, uh, let's go with, um, with an increase in high net worth donors interested in effective giving, what is the role of smaller donors? This might be something that each of you could speak on. I think there are a few different ways to look at this question. I think one of them is through cause area, because there may be some niche giving opportunities that are uh, neglected by relatively large donors, like big foundations. Some donors within the EA space, there's obviously a lot of infrastructure, as we've heard, uh, for giving to global health and poverty through GiveWell, for example. There's less infrastructure there for a cause area like mental health, for example. So if that's a cause area that motivates you as a small donor, there may be, uh, there may be some room for quite impactful giving in that space. Um, another way to look at it is just size and scale. So in the video from, uh, from Joey Savoy, who's the uh, co-founder of Charity Entrepreneurship, he mentioned how giving to a new young charity can be potentially a very high impact thing to do if that charity one day becomes, you know, a give well recommended level top cost effective charity. Um, those kind of new young charities, like the kind we try to incubate a charity entrepreneurship, are often overlooked by bigger foundations who are looking for an intervention that's more proven or that can already operate at a certain scale that can take on a big donation. Um, yeah, so I'll leave it there. So one thing to I always like to reiterate is that um, the, anyone's donation uh, might not make a world of uh, change, uh, but it does make uh, a huge change for the worlds of those who it does affect. So even if there are some charities which do have access to a, a lot of funding um, and that there are some large funders in the in the community now, there are still incremental opp funding opportunities um, and some of them uh, below the bar at which some very large foundations are willing to accept, um, but still an incredible giving opportunity. Something like Give Directly, uh, uh, GiveWell doesn't typically or hasn't uh, regranted to from their maximum impact fund, but you still get a hundred times uh, more impact by giving to that than you do by uh, giving to help someone in a rich country like Australia in the near term. Uh, so that's, you know, there's always this huge uh, opportunity for impact. You might wait until we find some you know, even better 500 times or you know, thousand times uh, opportunities, but there are always some really good opportunities. 
Um, and then there are also cases where small donors can outperform. Um, like Andrew said, if you have access to special knowledge, you, you know that someone uh, you know, uh, is particularly likely to be impactful and you're taking a risk on something like charity entrepreneurship or small grants. Um, also, there are some things that large donors can't give to. Uh, for example, guarding against pandemics uh, is uh, currently lobbying the US government uh, to be much more prepared for future th pandemics. Um, uh, COVID was pretty bad, but this, the type of things that we could face in the future could be even much worse. Uh, but because it's a political action group, um, it has a limit of $5,000 per donor. So an individual uh, small donor uh, could hit that limit. Similarly, individual donors uh, can get donor matching from their workplace. So there, there are lots of opportunities where smaller donors could outperform large you know, philanthropic institutions. I think Luke is basically spot on there. I, um, I, I think um, though high net worth uh, donors are like intensely useful, especially for early stage uh, charities, um, that like the, uh, yeah, smaller donors will always be, uh, be really useful in a number of ways. Um, and like, as Luke was saying, even if, um, even if it isn't completely solving a problem, if money is being like well used, yeah, extra bed, net, bed nets can make a big difference to, uh, people who need them. And, um, yeah, yeah. Even if it's a small change on the, on the ground, if this money is used cost effectively, it can be, it can still be really impactful. Yeah, and, and also some um, sometimes uh, foundations or large donors are restricted as the types of giving that they can do. Um, so if you're willing to give to something that isn't uh, a registered charity in, in a particular country that a large donor could have because they've got tax requirements, it could be a small grant um, or it could be a charity which hasn't yet got um, tax deductible status. Some countries require five years of um, financial statements before they can get tax tax deductibility and if their money is sitting in something like a trust the big large donors cannot give to that yet i think those are all fantastic points thank you all for your um points of view there i think that i mean it's really encouraging to still feel like you know as a small donor we can make a difference i think that sometimes people mm -hmm. do get caught up in that idea of oh we should just leave that to bill and melinda gates um <laughs> or things like that <laughs> but I, I would hope that most of us would see the value in it but i think it's a really good point so moving along to our next question, Kane has asked, how has the list of the most effective charities at giving what we can changed compared to five years ago and why? So Luke, you might be the best one to have a, have a go at that. Five years ago, uh, giving what we can had only just gone cause neutral. It was uh, still coming out of its early days of being very focused on global health and poverty. And at the time, I think about five years ago, the top charities, I think, were against Malaria Foundation, Evidence Actions, Dworm, the World Program, and Project Healthy uh, Children, which is now Sanku. So where things uh, lay today, giving what we can doesn't do primary evaluation research. We instead rely on our trusted evaluation partners, like we mentioned earlier, Give Well, Animal Charity Evaluators, Founders Pledge. So the cause diverse uh, diversity is, is a lot bigger than it was back then um, and some have come and gone um, but it is a lot more well view diverse taking into account animal lives or the lives of future generations next from anonymous we have a question for andrew um but maybe this can also apply to jack as well so which cause areas do you expect to help start new charities in for with charity entrepreneurship so for charity entrepreneurship 
In the uh, immediate short term, the next cause area that we're going to be focusing on is global health policy. Um, this is as opposed to global health direct interventions, um, which is something we've done in the past with charities like, uh, for example, Suvita or Fortify Health or Family Empowerment Media. And it's a bit more um, in the realm of what Jack is doing at Lead Exposure Elimination Project. So figuring out what kinds of policy interventions should be adopted by those bodies with the greatest scale of resources to implement them, governments, and figuring out, you know, if that intervention could be put in place, you know, where might that be? Like, where is, uh, you know, a country or a jurisdiction that really needs that intervention where we think, given the political factors, given the access we might be able to get to decision makers, that we could actually put some pressure on there and, and affect that change. So that's in the sort of immediate short term um, for our next incubation program. Further out in the medium term, uh, we may be looking at uh, cause areas, including animal policy. So again, the policy space, but focused on uh, animal welfare. And then looking a bit more forward, um, global health and poverty interventions at higher scale. So looking towards ideas that with the explicit intention that these are uh, um, interventions that might be able to absorb a higher scale of funding to move through a higher scale of impact than we've explicitly looked at in the past. In the further long term, and as we go further out, this is more uncertain, but this is just what we're thinking of at the moment. Um, we're excited about ideas like meta science, maybe looking into bio risks. Um, yeah, but that uh, that remains to be seen. Great. So maybe just expanding on that like global health policy a little bit. So Jack, did you want to talk to us about how you think that LEAP is kind of addressing that policy aspect and why that's like a really impactful angle to go in at? Yeah, yeah. So one reason we've chosen policy is because lead policy in particular looks very exciting, but policy in general is quite an interesting area um, because one issue with a lot of, uh, a lot of NGOs is um, recurrent costs of, uh, say, if you do something this year, then you may also need to do that again and again and again and again down the track. Whereas with policy, one thing that's really potentially quite exciting about it is if these things can be introduced, like one for like quite low cost, because a lot of these things are just say regulation to introduce new rules and two enforced at very low cost by government, as opposed to NGOs, then it enables a far greater scale of impact for, uh, or it potentially enables a far greater scale of impact for far lower cost. It is currently a bit of a risky bet at the moment, which is why it's so exciting to, um, to explore. But I, um, yeah, it, it, it is, uh, yeah, if we were looking for something that could, uh, that could exceed Give World Top Charities, policy ideas seem really, really exciting, I think. But I think um, one of the big uncertainties so far has been whether new organisations can actually get change in policy. Um, it was quite unclear to a lot of people how easy that would be. And there have been a, there have been a few orgs that have had a bit of, um, a, a bit of success about this. So it'll be really interesting to see how that progresses in the future. And we obviously hope that uh, you and Leap are one of those very successful organisations. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's right, yeah. The next question we have is, in your opinion, what has been the most exciting charity that Charity Entrepreneurship has incubated apart from Leap? So, um, Andrew, I might let you answer that. And maybe, Jack, I know that you obviously have worked quite a lot with them, so maybe you have some thoughts on that one as well. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of an unfair question because I work with uh, with all of these organizations. I mean, part of our program is that uh, even after they're launched, we continue to uh, to advise them. So uh, 
you know, it feels a bit like picking favorites. Um, but you know, everyone has their 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 favorite cause areas, and you know, that can be some combination of rational calculation and different ideas about moral weights. And some might just be, you know, your personal intuition or, or even your personal sentiment. Personally, the one I've always been most excited about was Happier Lives Institute because I like how they're bringing subjective well-being into the conversation space. It's relatively straightforward to use a metric like uh, disability-adjusted life years or quality-adjusted life years when we're talking about public health um, as a uh, as a metric to cross-compare effectiveness and cost-effectiveness across different types of interventions. But if we bring subjective well-being into the conversation, essentially what people report about what's important to them and how they're experiencing uh, their own well-being, um, that adds a whole other element of nuance. It's, it's just something that I often wondered about in my previous jobs I've worked in uh, before I was in the EA space, looking at that angle. So I, I think that's that's something that may um, just, you know, have your lives Institute is a very small organization, but I, I think the impact of injecting subjective well-being into the conversation is something that could just reverberate throughout uh, throughout the whole movement. This this is I again have uh, have Andrew's issue because it, it like there there are so many really amazing charities, but I I think I'm much more comfortable choosing favorites. So I, if I just like rattle off a few, so I'll um I I think um the work that Fortify Health done has has done in uh, say my, uh, micronutrient fortification in in uh, across India has been really, really exciting and really, really positive. And it's very exciting to see um, EA-minded orgs actually like making traction and and getting uh, getting well-monitored progress on these sorts of things. So, that, so that's one, the one that really excites me. But another one that I think is really interesting in the animal welfare space is uh, the Fish Welfare Institute, which um, is kind of like pushing boundaries a little bit in um, like similar to um, how Happier Lives Institute is pushing boundaries in that they're exploring to a new cause area. A lot of the animal welfare space is very focused on um, like tra- traditional animal, like animal welfare issues of like chickens and cows, which are like hugely important. But I think it's really interesting to see how the uh, fish welfare team has kind of identified an animal that was neglected um, and just not like their welfare wasn't really considered or thought about by many. And uh, yeah, and has uh, has since been trying to tackle that. And it seems like, as Andrew was saying, just like mental health could kind of reverberate through the movement. Expanding moral circle uh, seems like it could have a, a really positive effect uh, all around. Next, we've got one for Luke uh, around giving what we can. And the question is, how much do you expect giving what we can to grow over the next year? I feel like throwing that back to you, Grace, how you head of marketing. <laughs> um, giving what we can has a lot of changes uh, coming over the next 12 months. Slight uh, shift in focus. Uh, in terms of Pledges, I, I would love it if we had an, another year like we've had in the last uh, year where we had 2,000 pledges between uh, uh, the Give What We Can Pledge and the Trial Pledge. Uh, I'd love to, to, to outperform that. It's the biggest year we've had in, you know, ever, but uh, quite a big change uh, to previous years uh, leading up to that. But, yeah, what we're, we're looking to start uh, looking at shifting donations and also just growing the community further beyond uh, people who are making giving pledges as well. Um, so uh, watch this space. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really exciting time. I've just joined Giving What We Can two weeks ago. So I hope that there is a beautiful growth trajectory in front of us um, and looking forward to growing our community. Real thanks to Grace. <laughs> uh, next up, we have a question from Edith. And the question is, do you think that an emphasis on doing 
the most good you can do sometimes leads to an analysis paralysis. I think this is something that we can all relate to probably a little bit. The effective altruism community tends to draw analytical people and or just, you know, the kinds of people who would ask themselves, what is the most good I can do tend to be fairly analytical people. I know this is something I grappled with a lot, um, you know, even long before I knew about the effective altruism movement or knew that there were people out there trying to answer these questions in a really rigorous way. So, yeah, I, I think probably all of us, uh, as you said, Grace, uh, uh, can relate to this. What I try to think for myself is that, um, you know, I'm biased towards being overly analytical and I'm susceptible to this. Therefore, I need to overcorrect towards action um, and take the idea that analysis has diminishing marginal returns and at some point it's time to act. And that's why I really love charity evaluators out there who, um, you know, I'm not going to do the research myself uh, to the level that Gibwell has on global health and poverty charities. They've done that research. You know, they've done it transparently. You can go in and look at that. And, and that holds true for, for some of the other charity evaluators out there. Um, for me, that really helps just make the decision, say like, okay, that's the one. Um, I'm going to go with that because I've thought about this enough and now it's time to act. Yeah, I, I, I really agree with that. I think... Um... I think if if you're an analytical person, erring on the side of action is really really important because it is so easy to uh, kind of agonize over these things and kick kick the can down the road indefinitely. But I've also had a um a second solution which uh, which uh, which uh, a donor friend of mine uses, which is uh, when when people do have analysis paralysis, I think like one approach that's really good is to kind of err towards action bias. But the other approach is to recognize that if you're donating, you don't necessarily have to choose just one or the other. Um, a lot of people I know hedge their donations. So they say are uh, interested in, in um, animal welfare or also interested in, say, global development or also, also interested in, say, long-term causes. And, um, yeah, for a lot of them, um, yeah, splitting things between, say, like climate change and also, like, uh, addressing poverty um, kind of takes a bit of, the, uh, a bit of the risk out of the donations because they can be more certain that they're getting some, like, some form of impact that they're excited about. Yeah, I was speaking to one yeah. of our... Um our members the other day who was saying that he has 36 causes that he likes mm. to support and he uh, which i think is amazing right if you care about that many things i think it feels very powerful to make a significant difference or make mm. a difference across all of those um yeah something that i thought was yeah a, a different approach to what i think a lot of people in our community do luke did you have something to say as well one uh, phrase that I quite like that I think Charlie Bressler from The Life You Can Save uh, has used is it's not necessarily about trying to do the most possible good. It's about doing mm. your personal best and keep trying to like beat what you've done before. And each time you look at this question, go, can I do better? Um, and still act, uh, but then go, you know, can I do a little bit better this time? Um, and what might I not have considered? Which is also why I think taking the really long lifetime sustainable view of giving is great because you keep revisiting uh, you know on making sure that on some regular basis whether it's annually or uh, monthly or once every other year whatever it is set a rhythm to reviewing what you're doing and it means you've got a long time to learn and then typically people also build wealth over their lifetime and so um, by the time you get later in life uh, you can uh, be a lot more informed and you've got there by trying 
um, and and by learning along the way. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, my uh, personal mantra in life is I'm just trying my best. And I think this is another <laughs> great, <laughs> another great uh, time to apply that phrase where you're just going to try your best. Okay, forgiving what we can. Um, Luke, should we focus on getting members from specific professions with high incomes? Giving what we can, like one thing I love about it is it is incredibly diverse as a community. We have uh, everything from teachers and trades people to investment bankers and, you know, startup founders who become billionaires. Like there's quite a broad community. Um, and often you find that this diversity brings diversity of thought as well and that people learn from each other. That being said, I also think that there's a pretty strong case that those who have more um, have both a responsibility and an opportunity to give more. Um, and so um, it is easier to, to fish in those ponds, um, so to speak. And so, uh, yeah, we've, we've done work over the past year doing things like events targeted at consultants or people in medicine or law or other higher earning careers, both also uh, not just covering the idea of giving, but also showing how those careers can have direct impact as well. And so people can be following that existing career path, doing good with their career and donations, either within the existing industry or applying that to new things like the not-for-profit industry. So yeah, one of the uh, new charities that came out of our program this year is called High Impact Professionals. Uh, it exists to build communities within certain uh, professions interested in effective altruism. So reaching out to those communities, say, you know, consultants, people working in finance, what have you, and uh, supporting them to do as much good as they can. And that can be through encouraging effective giving, it can be through mobilizing their social capital, uh, getting them to build uh, giving programs within their places of work. Please check them out if, uh, if, that sounds, uh, if that sounds relevant to you. It's high impact professionals. Okay, moving on to um, a broader question from Adit. Effective altruism is a great movement and I would hope to see it proliferate even more. Don't we all? Um, how would you? How do you see the community grow in the next five to ten years? I have a view on this. I think that um, there's two levels to that. One is like a core uh, effective altruism: people who are spending a lot of time thinking about how to do the most good with their resources, who are incredibly epistemically rigorous. And I also see that there is kind of this Venn diagram around that. People who are using charity research to decide how they give. People who are maybe working within a particular cause area in a professional level um, and seeing each of those things growing as well. I think that there's been a lot of success um, in, you know, um, relatively consistent success over the past few years of, of this community growing. Um, and in fact, it does surprise me how often I might, you know, tell someone what, what I'm doing and they're like, oh yeah, effective altruism. Like, oh, I didn't, that was not happening five years ago. <laughs> um, so, you know, five to 10 years from now, I expect to see more of that. Um, but I'm particularly excited about whether there's a, a label effective altruism or not. There are a bunch of really important world problems that are, you know, where there's a huge opportunity for impact. And I'd love to see those really start to get you know, traction and, and, and make a lot of progress on solving and then finding new ones along the way. Um, but just the increasing compassion and, and applying critical thinking to how we uh, 
actually kind of embody that compassion. I think regardless if there is a label or not, that is something I want to see grow. And I think there are many avenues for that. The only thing I'd add to it of like, I, I think we've covered so much there of, um, of like both growing in terms of size and, um, yeah, yeah. But, but I think what one other angle is, uh, one thing we talk about a lot is, uh, is effective altruism in terms of being a question rather than an answer. So that's another angle that I'd, that I'd really like to see the, uh, the movement conti- continue to grow that I think we've been like, like really passionate about over the last like five years that like, we're not really, um, preaching, uh, about the right way to give, we're kind of exploring, like, like, like we're, we're exploring the questions and trying to identify, um, what are the things that we haven't noticed yet that could be the best wins. So it'd be really exciting in the next like five or 10 years to see, um, to see new fields, like, like Andrew was talking about with, with mental health before, of this is something that, um, people didn't really consider, uh, as a global health pri- or a global priority, um, 10 years ago. So it'd be really, really nice um, as we grow to see uh, intellectual and cause growth there as well. And take up the opportunity to mention uh, another uh, nonprofit we incubated in our last uh, round, which is called Training for Good. Um, and you know, to the question, I, I think the effective altruism uh, community, what we'd like to see is um, taking all the many people who are interested and enthusiastic and motivated about getting themselves involved in the community and making sure that they are able to mobilize that energy into useful pathways. And so Training for Good, which is uh, the name of the new nonprofit that came out, um, is focused on training people to upskill them to, uh, you know, hopefully slot them into useful roles in high impact organizations. Um, yeah. So if that sounds like, uh, if that sounds like something that matches uh, your interest, please do check them out. All right, we're getting close to the end, but let's try and do one more question at least. Um, So from Anonymous, do you recommend those who are new to effective giving use grant-making funds to donate over charities? Yeah, so it really depends on the donor and their goals. So if you are quite new and your goal is very much to maximise impact and you have a lot of flexibility in that in terms of you don't mind if it goes to small grants, you don't mind if it goes to charities, you're not quite sure about cause areas and you want to just put together a portfolio um, that you believe that you can trust grant makers uh, who to have like quite aligned values to you. I highly recommend funds as a way to like if decision fatigue is is the reason you're not getting started, highly recommend funds. Um, if the reason you're not getting started is you're trying to find like uh, something that resonates with you, then I'd more recommend having a look through some charities and find finding one that it, that does that. Because as we mentioned before, half the barrier is just getting started. Um, and there is fortunately a situation where when you have a large community of people with shared values, what you do affects what someone else does. And so if you give to a highly impactful charity that a fund might regrant to, uh, that fund might regrant just a little bit less. And if you give to a fund um, and not to a charity and that charity still needs the funding, then that grant might go there. Look, it's not completely that straightforward, but at the end of the day, getting started is is really, really important and valuable. Funds are a great way of finding great giving opportunities that individual donors wouldn't otherwise be able to access, but they can also be a, a little bit far removed for some donors as well. I'd agree with with uh, what Luke just said. It, it's it's a great way to get going. Um, another way to think about it is in terms of 
um, risk in some ways. So there's an easy analogy here with investing. You know, you can take high risk, potentially high reward, potentially complete failure. Um, you know, bets with things like brand new charities, like Jack was mentioning, working in policy space is potentially high risk. And you know, when we're launching new charities, we we definitely expect. It's, I think it's reasonable to expect that some of them will not achieve their objectives, but then again, some of them might. Some of them might become, you know, at the level of a GiveWell recommended charity or an animal charity evaluators recommended charity. You know, if you're looking for a potentially high high risk, high reward opportunity, that may take a little bit more um, research. Um, if you're looking for something that's relatively well proven and known, and is also like very, very highly impactful compared to the average nonprofit, then you know the charity evaluators that have been mentioned in this. Uh, in this uh, seminar today are, are your best bet. Yeah. The other thing that can be quite exciting about that is, uh, especially for like uh, early and medium stage uh, charities, Le- Leap is thankfully past this stage. I think there's a, there's a stage early in a lot of charities lives where they're kind of between um, seed funding and, um, and larger foundations and things like this, where they might not necessarily get funded from elsewhere. So if there are, if there's strong counterfactual value in like certain areas, of uh yeah if if a thing might not have uh yeah might might not have received funding otherwise then there's potentially huge amounts of impact to be had there but of course those opportunities exist in um uh, in in bigger uh, in bigger organizations as well here and there so we might do one very quick last question it's a bit more of a meta question from sonia um and then we'll close up so sonia has asked if, if we think there's a reason that give well might be a more popular um, charity um, evaluating organization than the life you can save within effective altruism. GiveWell um, do direct re- a lot more direct research. Uh, the Life You Can Save do some, and they're starting to do a bit more. They also have different focuses. Uh, the Life You Can Save uh, is a bit more broad in their focus, um, trying to be uh, appealing to a broader range of people. And they've had incredible growth in the last year um, trying to do that, using also Peter Singer's uh, book and his presence as a uh, public intellectual um is you know, quite helpful give well have a very very specific lens at which they look through look at charities they have a, a fixed cost effectiveness model that they apply across the board and it is it is a lens to look at the world is a great lens uh, in many ways uh, but the life you can save take a little bit more of a diverse approach to that um and uh yeah so in terms of if you're looking at something that's very consistent um give well has done the same thing for um, quite a long time and then they've you know kind of changed it slightly but they've been very consistent so that's why it's quite an easy thing to robustly recommend that's very understandable to a lot of people but it does apply to fewer people because it is a narrower lens well i think that was a, a great answer to that question so i wanted to thank each of you for being on our panel tonight Uh, It's been a really great discussion and I think it's been a really great way to kind of end our Giving Tuesday here in in Australia. If you fill in our post-event survey uh, as well as if you've registered for our event, we will be able to send you links to everything that we've mentioned today, our giving guide for 2021 from Giving What We Can, as well as you can opt to receive a free book on effective altruism. So if you go to bit.ly slash 
EG Day 2021. That's where you'll be able to find our post-event survey. And I'm sure that Luke just put it in the chat because he is so onto it. Um, so thank you so much to our panel, to all of the organizations who have been a part of organizing Effective Giving Day 2021, and mostly to all of our attendees who came to learn a little bit more about Effective Giving. We hope that this has been a useful, a useful uh, hour moving into the giving season at the end of 2021. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for lending me your ears for the duration of this episode. I hope it's helped you to do even more good. Further details on this episode can be found on our blog at givingwhatwecan.org, where you can also find more resources on how to maximize your charitable impact. Don't forget that giving season is a great time to advocate for effective giving, make an end of year donation, or even consider taking a giving pledge. Until next time, keep on doing good.